This morning we focus our attention on 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 to 33, closing out the 10th chapter. And I've entitled this message, The Free Conscience, The Free Conscience. And the reason that I believe that that is a fit for what we're learning this morning is because what Paul desired for the Corinthians in this context was a free and clear conscience in Christ. That's what he wanted for them. And we covered that last time as we begin to approach this issue related to idolatry as a general thing, but also idolatry uh, as it is applied to as a sin, uh, the realm of eating food uh, and eating meats, particularly particularly related to the culture in Corinth. So Paul desired that in the midst of all of that, in the midst of the pagan worship, in the midst of all that uh, the Christians had seen in the world before them, uh, especially as Paul is trying to strengthen the church in Corinth, that he wanted them to have their conscience both free and clear in Christ. And he especially wanted this for them because they were surrounded on all sides by pagan worship and idolatry. So they were surrounded by this and Paul wanted it to be free. So therein, I believe, lies a lesson for us because there are so many uh, who are robbed of their freedom and peace in Christ because they are surrounded by sinfulness, although they themselves may not be guilty of sin. And I believe that is the time in which you and I find ourselves in the society with which we live. We are overwhelmingly surrounded by sin, uh, open, flagrant sin, and yet we must guard our hearts and guard ourselves in holiness against it. And I believe that this is what Paul was trying to spur the Corinthians onward toward in his love for the church there and also in his love for the body of believers who were in the midst of that pagan and wicked society. But what Paul reminds us is this, and I hope that you can take this as both a confidence and an encouragement to your heart is that our peace is not dependent on the presence or absence of outward circumstance. Our peace is not dependent on the presence or absence of outward circumstance. The word is clear in many ways, and you can look it up all the way from the Old Testament through the New, that this one concept will help us guard our own hearts as we look at the Corinthians, but also help us to understand where the Corinthians may have failed. But this point is what will help us. And the word is clear that Jesus Christ alone is our peace. Jesus Christ is our peace. It is said explicitly in the scripture that that's the case. But I believe that that is what Paul is calling the Corinthians toward, that Jesus Christ is our peace. But more specifically, not beside that point, but more specifically explaining that point, is once you understand this and you understand that it is necessary, and Paul will explain this, it is necessary to be at peace with Christ and then to walk in that peace. And so in order to do that, in order to experience that, and in order to truly have that, your conscience must be free and it must be clear. It must be clear of any wrongdoing and it must be free to walk in freedom in Christ. And I believe that the reason that Paul speaks to the Corinthians the way he does, he doesn't speak to them in arrogance. He certainly defends uh, himself against many of the things that will approach uh, and challenge his ministry to them. But he doesn't speak above them. He speaks in all humility toward them. And I believe it's because he walked this way among those to whom he ministered in the known world at that time. 
that he really walked among them with both a free and clear conscience. Even more so, so did Christ. But Christ, being the perfect God-man, had no reason, no possibility whatsoever that his conscience would be anything less than perfect. But what Christ did do, as we have learned even in our study in Hebrews, uh, as Paul authored that, is what we did learn in Hebrews and what we have been learning is that Jesus did, in fact, endure contradiction of sinners against himself. So Jesus did walk among sinners, although he was not a sinner. And he had to endure all the things that sinners uh, do and that the sinners are responsible for. And so Jesus knows very well about what it is to endure in that from that perspective. But also, as we look at the relationship of Paul's writings there, what Paul is explaining is that that certainly proves and shows his qualification as the great high priest. Whereas here what we see is we see that Christ himself has walked in that way, and so he's worthy of imitation. And being worthy of imitation, we then can live holy in the midst of a society and a people and even sometimes a corrupt church. So Paul points this out to those in the known world at that time. I believe that Paul was very much acquainted with not only Christ who liberates men, but the free Christ. I believe he was acquainted with this because he says in verse 11, I'm sorry, in verse one of chapter 11, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. And so he is trying to and living as though he is like Christ. So he walked with Christ and he did so among men in a very similar manner. That is with a free conscience. It's with a free conscience. And I believe that's why he says what he says to the Corinthians related to this issue of idolatry. And we'll be approaching other issues that the church there faces. And I want you to keep this thought along the way that his conscience is free because he is walking with Christ. His conscience is free because he is walking with Christ. He has said it in other places. We have even seen it in Romans that his conscience is not simply free because he has trained his conscience to liberate it. His conscience is free because there's one outside of himself that has liberated him. And he walks with the one who has freed his conscience, namely Christ. But I'll also say as we begin to look at the text before us, you have to understand what is truly taking place because it helps us to see the flow that Paul is trying to uh, communicate, the flow of the narrative and the letter in the epistle that Paul is trying to communicate to the Corinthians. For on the one hand, you see here throughout his time so far that he did not seek to bring personal offense for its own sake. He didn't want to offend the Corinthians for the sake of causing offense. He also did not cause his brothers to stumble. So I'm now explaining to you some of the finer points of what it means to have a free conscience. Yet, on the other hand, as you will see in our text, Paul did not let anyone subjectively judge his freedom in Christ subjectively, meaning according to personal interests, according to how they felt, according to maybe what they perceived outwardly. As you move through this letter, there's going to be an issue that is brought among the Corinthians by false teachers. And those false teachers are going to begin to charge Paul with all kinds of things. And what you'll see that Paul maintains is his freedom, his freedom in Christ. 
that I have only done as Christ has directed me. And so that is the standard. So he doesn't let anyone very early on from the vantage point of our epistle moving forward throughout Corinthians. He doesn't let anyone judge him subjectively. That is based on simply intuition or feelings or their thoughts about something outside of God's will. He also did not let anyone despise his freedom. He did not let anyone despise his freedom. So you see that what Paul does is he begins along those lines to defend his conscience and to defend his freedom and also plead for the Corinthians to live as free in Christ as well along those same lines. So in verse 23, he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify or build others up. So in verse 23, what we see here is Paul wanted to deal with matters as they would impact natural law and those things that take place from a practical perspective. So by natural law, I mean the, the laws of the land, the things that govern the law, the things that govern people's actions. Paul wanted to deal with matters as they would impact natural law. And I would say sometimes bound in natural law, uh, especially the laws of the land, are religious things. Whether those religious things uh, are related to the will of God or not is often seen in where they lead and often seen in Christians measuring those things against his word. But Paul wanted to deal with those issues, the laws of the land specifically, and then the divine law that is the law of God. So when you look at verse 23, his statement is within that context. What he says to the Corinthians is based on that context. For in all things, the Corinthians were to judge these matters effectively. He wanted them to be able to judge their practical lives and how they live effectively. Specifically here, they were to consider how to deal with idolatry as it had been attached to something so necessary as eating food. And so he wants them to understand I need you to deal with this, and I need you to not stop eating, but I need you to also not become idol worshipers. And so how then, where is my appeal to live in the face of that situation? Because you see how perverse something so beautiful as nourishing our bodies and God has provided sustenance, how it can be perverted and twisted and turned in such a way so as to bring guilt and shame on those who are eating or so as to turn their thoughts away from God where they're supposed to be giving thanks to God for you. And also what Paul wanted is this. He wanted to help the Corinthians understand the answer to this. How, within the culture with which they found themselves, how to maintain their Christian witness. How do they maintain their Christian witness? And I'm not speaking of the occasion whereby they may have actively been evangelizing, although that is certainly a way to maintain your Christian uh, witness. But what I'm referring to is as they practically live, eat, have their being, as they practically uh, function in the society around them, how do they maintain their Christian witness? In other words, how are they to refrain And how were they to partake? What was to be their guide in determining what things were good for them and what things were not good for them? Or what things were good for them but did not build up others around them and what things 
were indeed lawful, but may not have been lawful for the Christians. So Paul wanted to get down into the very nuances and the distinctions that certainly keep us before God in faithfulness and holiness. And he did so. What Paul could have done is he could have taken the posture of saying, listen, this is something I don't want to discuss. Simply eating food, dealing with food, just eat as you please. Let's go on to high theological matters. But no, Paul gets down with them in their holiness and he says, listen, I want you to even think about this very act of eating and what that means. And I want you to partake. But here's how. Here's what should guide your conscience as you do things in the world around you. Well, you see it in what is said in this verse primarily, but we also understand here that God is himself judging matters according to his own divine law. That's how God is judging things. And therefore, we are to judge according to the same standard. God has not permitted anyone, specifically the apostle, definitely the Corinthians, and by extension, us in the time in which we find ourselves, he's not permitted anyone to render judgments outside of his standard, outside of his will and his word. So whatever it is we do and however it is we do it, we must derive our position from his word. And then we're doing according to his will because we're doing that which is in accordance to his word. However it may look to the, to the eye, we do not walk by faith, we walk, we, I'm sorry, we do not walk by sight, we walk by faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. So what our eyes see at times can betray us. And that is what Paul is dealing with in the Corinthians, that our eyes can betray us at times. And we can see things that may not be uh, causes uh, for slavery. But if we're very careful in using our discernment and exercising our faith, then those things we know can cause us to be enslaved. So I want to say that again, that it is indeed important for us to have our sight informed by our faith. And that's what Paul is proclaiming to the Corinthians. He's not saying don't see. He's saying see what's before you, but judge according to God's standard. And so that is his purpose as he comes to them in this matter and begins to deal with them, even as this relates to the Lord's Supper. So the Corinthians were not to simply appeal to natural law. They they were not to simply ask, is this illegal or is it lawful? They were not simply to ask that in the natural sense. I'm not saying they weren't to ask it. I'm saying they had to go beyond that. But rather, here's what they should ask in living amongst those with whom they find their fellowship and also living in a world where unbelievers are present And we must move through that world and sometimes find ourselves dining at the table with unbelievers. But listen to this. You must ask this question instead and ask it in in conjunction with the question I posed. But rather, is my action profitable and does it edify or build up my brother or sister? Is it profitable? Is it profitable? And I get that from what he says in verse 23. All things are lawful. He says it twice. All things are lawful. But he is also going to a standard that is very much more specific 
than just being lawful, than just being that which is permitted. But not all things are profitable. Not all things edify. I think it is very dangerous to say, well, said action is not illegal, so I can perform that action as long as the laws dictate that I can perform that action. That is very dangerous to our sanctification if we stop there. It is much better to say, is this profitable? And does this build up my brother or sister? Even if it's legal. Because some things, even in Corinthian society, were definitely legal that did not profit one's walk in Christ and did not build up their brothers and sisters. In fact, it may have been legal and it tore them down. And it could tear down the church as well. But I believe that in this, our immediate context is still largely concerning when Corinthians gathered around food. When they gathered around food. But you and I also know it's not restricted to that. Because what we know and what we're saying now, what we've said so far, can be applied to so many other areas. It can certainly be applied to so many other areas. All things are lawful. You see it on both sides as Paul is making his point for the Corinthians and for us. And his point is not to argue if something is legal. Because, again, even in our land, there are many things that are legal and they are wicked. And then there are certain things that are in other places illegal, such as the gathering of God's people to worship and fellowship around his word and in his name. That may be illegal, but it builds brothers and sisters up in Christ. It's profitable. And so that should be the question that is asked. But as I've stated Paul is making his point for the Corinthians and us not to argue if it's simply illegal and then do so as if it being legal is okay, even if it's at the expense of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Rather, what he's calling for is we must build up and we must profit one another. We must build up and we must profit one another. We must bring a spiritual benefit to one another. And I believe that as we are moving toward the spiritual gifts, I truly see a trace of Paul moving in that direction and what he says to that very point, that we must build up, we must profit one another, not in the financial sense, but instead is what we are doing providing value to your spiritual walk in Christ. Is it providing value to your spiritual walk in Christ? Is the action I'm taking and undertaking as I say I'm representing him and as we say we represent him as ambassadors, do we provide value to others related to their spiritual walk in him? For again, things can be lawful and tear us down. Things can be lawful and tear the church down. They could also be lawful and not mutually beneficial for us to do together as believers. Paul knew this point very well, and you and I know it very well. Paul knew that the laws of men change. The laws of men change. What is lawful today is not necessarily lawful tomorrow. What was illegal yesterday may be legal today. And what was legal yesterday may be illegal today. So then how do we live and make our uh, make our appearance 
And how do we represent Christ and maintain our holiness in such a situation? Paul answers it here for the Corinthians. Since the laws of men change, you and I know, and the Corinthians were to know, that it cannot be our standard as we fellowship with one another in Christ. There must be an unchanging standard that not only brings us together in fellowship, but informs our fellowship. I think you and I have seen this, and I think we've seen it in the lockdown measures and all those things, and I don't mean to politicize any of it, but I believe it made cowards of so many. Because so many standard for what they do in their fellowship was based on the shifting laws of men. And look how they shifted just in a couple of years. That it took people's consciences who were already enslaved and just made them bigger slaves to certain things without them asking in wisdom and discretion the question that I provided to you. If we cease to fellowship, is that profitable? And will that build you up? No matter what anybody's saying. Or should we continue, no matter what the world is saying about us, so long as it is profitable in Christ and so long as it builds us up? And so Paul knew that these things change. So we need to have something unchanging, someone immutable, unchanging, that governs what we do. And so we know that what Paul is appealing to the Corinthians, if they're going to have a free conscience, what is expressed to them, decrees must come from above and explain to them how they are relate to one another. And I believe that chapter 11, verse one provides such a great, not necessarily a bookend, but at least it provides an end to our immediate context. Because Paul says, if you don't know what that looks like, follow me. Because I'm following Christ. And therein lies our freedom. But in verse 24, Paul further reinforced this point. It reads, let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Then in verse 25, he says, eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. You see also in verse 25, the desire for the Christian conscience in Corinth to be free. And if Paul wants them to be free in Corinth, he wants them to be free for all time because that's what Christ wants. But I think you must understand as we as we back up, if you really look at what what it says in verse 25, anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. Can we notice how spiritually depraved society was at that point? That the everyday action of eating and selecting food to eat in the marketplace and sustenance had been so corrupted by pagan and idol worship, really demon worship, that the Christian was to eat and not probe further into what use the meat would have beyond their partaking of it for nourishment. It shows you how pressed they really were. And it shows you how pagan it really was in this simple area of eating. How the marketplace had been hijacked by demon worship and demon sacrifice. But listen, 
No matter what use men make of the things that God has provided, the good things, we must understand that God has still provided them. And so whatever use those pagans had for the food, God provided the food. And so Paul wanted the Corinthians to really think about that point, that it was God who provided what he did. Again, this is within the context of food specifically. And so I'm not applying this to illegal substances that have been manipulated and people have been coerced. And these things have been cultivated by wicked man with a wicked intention to alter the mind and other facets of man's constitution. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying partake of those things freely. I'm talking about food, specifically food. Because what Paul is saying here is, really, there is nothing inherently wrong with the meat itself. There's nothing wrong with the meat itself. We're not Gnostics. We don't think material things are inherently wicked. So Paul is saying those material things are provided by God. But people can have wicked purposes and wicked uses for them and then manipulate and coerce others to use them in the same way. And I say what I'm saying because look at what he says in verse 26. He draws from our understanding of what's written in the psalm. Psalm chapter 24 and chapter 50. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. A simple thought. A simple thought but yet one that is very much true and one that governs our living. Verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go. Is it a sin to want to go? No. Because you must make your living. You must make your witness. You must be salt and light. You must go. You don't have to go. But if you want to go, you are permitted to go. And again, in this area of eating. Anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. So he says that because the Christian in Corinth was supposed to be free. The Christian in Corinth was supposed to be free. And they were supposed to be free to eat. Provided this, that the believer did not seek to trace the origins of the meat's use or seek to understand how it would be used next. In other words, it was best not to know. It was better not to probe that far. There's a simplicity to simply eating and enjoying a meal. And it's not in the case that when one is with an unbeliever, they're fellowshipping. So why ask such questions? You're simply eating. You're not fellowshipping with unbelievers if you're sharing a meal with them. You're eating with unbelievers. And if you're eating with unbelievers, asking spiritual questions about what they intend to do with what they consume would then draw you into a situation where then you will be fellowshipping around a cause that brings you outside of God's will and the true nature of fellowship. But listen to this. The Christian being free to eat, provided that they didn't trace the origin. The Christian is free to eat with unbelievers as one is dining with them or a guest to them and to eat without probing, but rather eat freely in a holy and clear conscience in Christ. Eat freely. 
That is the first scenario upon which Paul happens. And I believe that these are not simply hypothetical scenarios. I believe it is actually what the Corinthians were facing. And their responses were not always what they should have been. How do I know that? Well, you see how they, in the next chapter, approach the Lord's table. I believe that some of this carries over. Their improper application or misapplication of these things begins to work its way into the Lord's Supper. And you see it, and Paul aims to correct that as well. But in verse 28, the other scenario is this. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. And then look at verse 29. I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom? I'm still free. Why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? He says if there is full disclosure, and I believe, again, you can apply this to many things. If there is full disclosure provided to you that the meat is sacrificed to idols. Then the believer, if the believer were partaking with that full disclosure, the believer could mislead the one who informed them or their conscience. You can mislead them and or their conscience. So the issue is because continuing to eat with them is to be a partaker with them. You're partaking in their sins. You're partaking in their idolatry because you know that that idolatry is present. Again, this is dealing with the area of food because simply you and I, you and I sitting down and eating a meal is not necessarily a sin. And eating a meal with somebody who's not a believer is not a sin. But eating a meal when you're told this is a sacrifice to the gods, quote unquote, who are really idols, who are really demons, or sitting down and eating a meal that is tied to demonic worship. In some way, and that being fully disclosed to you, you are not to eat. You are not to eat. That's why I'm also very leery of people who call everything fellowship. They call everything fellowship. They call sitting down and having a meal fellowship. They call going out somewhere to a park fellowship. Everything is fellowship. You have to be very careful with that because everything is not fellowship. Some things are just what they are. Some things are just we're having a meal. But if you and I are in Christ and we're his body and we're sitting down to enjoy a meal together, I do consider that fellowship because we are doing it with him in mind to his glory and to his honor. But that can't be said across the board in every situation, no matter how simple the activity may be or how complex the activity may be. The question we go back and ask ourselves then is, does this edify and is it profitable? It is profitable to sit down and eat. It is not profitable to sit down and eat food that is sacrificed to idols as there has been a disclosure to you that that is what is taking place. I find it also fitting, too, that people who use this nowadays to do some kind of cultural, not only appropriation, but spiritual accommodation and all those areas of compromise Often the people who draw you into idolatry are more honest than the people who are saying they're Christians. The person is saying, hey, this is food sacrificed to idols. And if you sit there and eat it, you're being dishonest. That's what Paul is saying. 
Rather, you say, oh, okay, if that being the case, I, I cannot eat with you. I do not give worship or my heart sacrifice to anyone but the Lord God himself. Again, the issue is to continue eating is to be a partaker with them. Paul warned this in verses 20 to 21. He says it explicitly. No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and to not God. I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So what he's after is something you and I have talked about so many times over the time of our fellowship together. God cares about motive. He cares about why do we do what we do. It's not just the doing of it. It's why are we doing what we do. Just as he warned in verses 20 and 21, it is to, if there is full disclosure as stated in verse 28, it is to knowingly sit at the table of demons. It is to knowingly sit at the table of demons. It is to knowingly invoke what is behind the sacrifice. It is to not eat with full thanksgiving to God because that's why we eat. He'll say that in verse, 30, in verse 31 of this chapter. At stake then is true Christian worship and representing Christ in the same activity that has been hijacked to perform pagan worship. You understand that? That's been hijacked to perform pagan worship. Because there's nothing wrong with eating meats. There's nothing wrong with thanking God as you're eating meat. And being thankful. But then you see how this has been joined to the specific context of food, sacrifice, to idols. Well, now you can see as Paul begins to explain the Lord's Supper, some of what goes with this. That as they begin to feast and enjoy in their love feast, that time that they have just commemorated or they may do so previously, but they're looking either toward the Lord's Supper and having a feast together or they're looking back to the Lord's Supper uh, by commemorating that time with a feast. Paul wants that to be governed by the Lord. He doesn't want it to turn into what he's warning against. But I would say one should not be slandered or unrighteously judged if they eat in freedom before Christ for the glory of God. And you see that in what Paul says at the end of verse 28. Do not eat it for the sake of the one who informs you. Because we are not the same, so therefore we can't eat around the same causes. I can't join myself to your cause in this instance. Nor for conscience sake. Well, not yours, because yours is already free. It's why you're making the determination. He says, I mean, not for your conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? And then he says, if I partake with thankfulness. Why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Do you remember when Jesus was eating with the tax collectors and they slandered him? And they said, behold, he eats with the tax collectors. He's a friend of sinners, meaning he's an accomplice with them. 
I believe that Paul is in some ways under the same charge in Corinth, that they're beginning to say, well, if you're eating with unbelievers, then you're an unbeliever. But that's a big leap without considering why. And have I refrained to eat with unbelievers if they tell me what they're doing is a sacrifice, is a worship? There are many other things that happen today that are of the same. There are food festivals and things that take place that are an ode to the particular religious ideology attached to the festival. We can't eat everything with everybody all the time, but we can eat whatever we like to the glory of God. And so that's what Paul is saying, that it really comes down to am I building up and am I edifying? I think this is great for us because you see the Christian confessing Christian church at large has become accustomed to doing everything with the idea that they're winning everyone when really they're winning nobody. But the idea is that if you're going to give me full disclosure, then I'm going to give you full disclosure. I can't partake in what it is you do, and thank you for telling me what it is you do. I'm not going to avoid you because I have to win you out of that, but I am certainly going to avoid what it is you do concerning your worship. I'm not just going to eat just because we're under the pressure to eat. I'm not going to fill in the blank activity because everybody else is doing it. It must build up. And it must be profitable. It must maintain my witness and my holiness before God. But Paul says, I know my motive and my motive should not be slandered. You should be so free. Paul is telling the Corinthians, you should be so free that in eating, you have thought these things through. You have thought them through that you're eating because you're thankful to the Lord who provides sustenance, especially meat. And so your thankfulness should not be slandered. But then I believe he goes beyond food in verse 31. Whether then you eat or drink, and then look at this, or whatever you do. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I think in living in this world, because none of us should be trying to push each other into a place where we cannot be salt and light. So you have to physically leave here and engage with people of all walks, of all ideologies, of all beliefs. And yet you have to figure, how do I maintain my witness, my holiness, my sanctification, and where I fall and stumble, I confess it before the Lord honestly. But... I believe you asked this question. Am I doing what I do to glorify God? Truly. Not as a tagline, not as a mantra, not because that's what we say when everybody shows up. But am I really doing what I do to bring glory to his name? And it can be from a task that we have probably relegated as one that is just so menial and so trivial, such as eating or drinking, when really it's not because that provides you to keep going. It's fuel to keep your life moving forward. So it is, it is a very important activity, but more than that, it's more important that you do it to bring honor and glory to God. And then he says, whatever you do, whatever you do, 
Now, obviously, that doesn't encompass sin. So all here is limited to that which would build up yourself and be profitable for yourself. But whatever you do, make sure you do all to the glory of God. So it's not every single thing. So our friends who like to look at the word all and make it all encompassing have to recognize that it is not all encompassing. Because if you do that, if you sin, God does not receive glory from when we practice sin. There is no glory in that. There's only judgment. But I like the freedom in what Paul says, but it starts with the conscience and works itself out in the actions. Well, why do you do that? Why do you? Well, I try to bring honor to God. I try to bring my glory to God. I don't withdraw from society, but whatever it is I do, I make sure that my actions are spoken for in the word, that my actions agree with his will, that if I'm acting toward others, I do my very best. And I'm saying us all as Christians, not me particularly, but I do my very best to bring honor to his name, to build them up, to provide value for their spiritual walk. And when I do what I do, whether it is uh, attending something or whether it is enjoying some kind of recreation that I'm bringing glory to God in that action. I can do those things. I just have to ensure that I'm glorifying his name. That I'm not glorying in my flesh or boasting in my flesh or I'm not in the flesh. And he says that because of where our actions lead. We may do something independently, but there are no such things as simply independent consequences. Not when you're fellowshipping as a body with believers. Everything has consequence, good and positive, bad and negative. He goes beyond food in that, whatever it is you do. So then even as we see this as it is written, we know we must ask ourselves in everything we do, can this be done to bring glory to God? Can I bring glory to God in what I am doing? And this, however, being free as Christians are, we are truly free. We are the only ones in this world before us who are truly free. I mean, Christians, those who confess the name Jesus Christ as Lord and those who live according to him and those who have his righteousness. Largely known as the church in our age. All Christians who worship him are truly free. And Christians are the only ones who are free. But in that, it was to be no occasion to cause neither the Jews or the Greeks to stumble in any situation. Verse 32, give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks. And then look at what he says here. Or to the church of God. That is especially important. The Jews and the Greeks... Give no occasion for them to stumble, but give no offense to the church of God. Although Paul was certainly a fierce warrior, I really believe this. He's a fierce warrior in the faith. You see in him a gentleness, not in the infeminate and postmodern sense. where People call you to be gentle because they don't want you to be bold. But I'm saying you see boldness in him, but you also see this gentleness in him. And not in the ecumenical sense, not joining all ideologies together. Let's just sit down and eat and sing songs. That doesn't matter what you believe. You don't see that either. But I'm talking about you see a gentleness in him when he comes to the issue of how do I benefit others and how do I help them profit in their walk? 
You see a gentleness in him. You see it in his heart that he wants that for them. You see him even speak of his emotions and how that brings him in back in Romans, how that brings him to a state where he says, if I could, I would wish myself a curse if I could. I mean, I can't. I'm thankful I can't. But if I could, I certainly would. For him, it's that serious that others are walking in freedom and others are walking with Christ. So it's so many who are saying they're like Paul and they're not like this. So they're not like Paul. Because Paul really cared about people coming together in sound doctrine, in sound unity, and walking in holiness together in that. Sounds like the Psalter. But this was, however, not necessarily at the expense of himself as though he were worthless. Look at what he says. Just as I also please men in all things, not seeking my own profit or not simply seeking my own profit, but the profit of many so that they may be saved. In other words, Paul was saying, I'm not compromising my salvation to save people and I'm not pleasing all men in everything, even if it encompasses sin. But what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to bring them to a place in which I not only have an audience, but the audience that I'm trying to gather together, I want them to be saved by the proclamation and testimony of the good news. What it was for Paul is what it should be for us. But rather, he says, at the profit of others to see their salvation. And within that, their sanctification. And he knew that they would meet the Christ in whom they had entrusted their faith. Look at verses one of two, uh, one and two of the next chapters, and then we'll end our time as we look to this next time. First Corinthians chapter eleven, verse one: Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. And verse two: Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions, just as I have delivered them to you. Let's pray.